2: From
3: KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, as students return to classrooms, or prepare to, schools are looking to tutoring, extended school days, and even new standards to address gaps that may have been exacerbated by distance learning. Students from low-income families and English learners were among those least able to consistently log in to virtual school. But what's the best way to meet students' needs after the pandemic affected their school year? We'll hear how schools, teachers, and education groups are approaching the move back to full in-person instruction. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As students fully return to classrooms or prepare to, what's the best way to meet students where they are after the pandemic affected their school year? That's the question we'll be exploring this hour. And joining me first is third grade teacher in San Jose, Ariel Johnson. Ariel Johnson, welcome to Forum.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be
3: here. We're so glad to have you here as well because we know it's tricky to make this work with teachers' schedules. Can you tell me about your third grade students and, and what it was like for you to teach them virtually this year?
1: Yes, absolutely. I actually had the great pleasure of looping with my students. So I was their kindergarten teacher. They had a different teacher for first grade and they came back to me in second grade. And of course we went virtual last March and then um, we've remained virtual throughout the school year. We'll actually be coming back to um, -to face-to-face school on April 21st after our spring break at 50, 50% capacity. So we are super excited about that, but I, you know, also mourning the loss of the students who are going to be staying at home. So, you know, I know that my experience has been different than a lot of teachers because I've had the, the pleasure and joy of looping with my children. So we came in knowing each other really, really well and um, having I came in having a deep understanding of where they were um, and where I could possibly take them. And you know, we've had Struggles. Of course, this is difficult for every single person involved, whether it's the children themselves, their families, the teachers who are teaching them, um, you know, that has been complex and we've navigated that complexity. You know, one of the things that we've said over and over again is that we are the kind of people who do hard things. So, um, you know, we met every we met every week last summer, one day a week to kind of keep in touch with each other and maintain that community and we brought that into the school year with us. And, you know, we're just excited about the possibilities for the last six weeks of school as we come back together in person.
3: What were some of the biggest challenges or the struggles, as you mentioned, in terms of having to teach them virtually for most of this year? And congrats on having some of them come back as well on the 21st for both you as a teacher and also what you noticed among your students.
1: You know, I actually... Ask the students themselves what kinds of struggles they were feeling. And I think the most common answer is struggling to focus, you know, mm. it's incredibly difficult for lots of different reasons to focus in an online setting. First of all, it's not developmentally appropriate, right? They are eight, and nine years old. And so to sit in front of an iPad or computer from 8.15 to one fifty every day is incredibly difficult for them. You know, our district has mandated some kind of longer breaks than they would normally take at face-to-face school. And so I think that that's been helpful. Um, but you know, honestly, it's just not what children are supposed to do, sit in front of a screen like that and attempt to learn. And then in addition to that, you know, they are in all kinds of contexts within their homes in terms of the noise level in their homes or distractions like television and games and siblings and all of those things that families are trying to kind of navigate right now and have been very challenging. But you know what I would say, um, aside from that, the other thing that they complain about and actually they asked if we could stay to protest um, <laughs> not too long ago, is the technology. It's been a total and complete nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, the technology piece, uh, our district, you know, I applaud them. They were very you know reactive, they reacted very quickly, to even at you know at the end of last school year to make sure every child had a device in their home to make sure everybody had a hotspot so they could at least have that kind of connection um, internet wise. But the thing is that the bandwidth on a hotspot <laughs> is not appropriate for um, the you know the video conferencing that we are attempting to do. So right. there are plenty of times every single day every single hour of the day you know, through every single subject that I'm teaching where a kid will press their mic, you know, to, to talk to us, to say something and they get disconnected or I'll send them to a breakout room and all of a sudden they lose their audio connection. So they can't talk or they can't hear, Um, and you know to turn the cameras on
4: <laughs> you know <laughs> wow that, yes
1: that's a joke right I, like to just so yeah It's uh, the technology just has been horrifying honestly yes
3: well i, I actually do know quite well i have some young kids, but they will come back, as we're going to talk about in this hour, with a range of needs. Some will have thrived in the virtual environment, some will have not. And I'm wondering how you were thinking about what needs to be done to meet kids where they are. What are you preparing to do? For example, you'll have some kids coming back um, soon, and then you'll have kids who won't be coming back until late summer, early fall. What do you think needs to be done and, and think you might do differently?
1: Well, on an individual teacher level, I think it's important for me to first make them feel safe and comfortable. I mean, I myself cried when I walked into our classroom, um, last fall after having been gone since Mm. March, you know, it was like walking into a time capsule and seeing like what was written on the board in light of what had happened in the world. And, um, you know, their, their materials, like they have boxes of books that they, um, read from our classroom library, So to see like, Oh, these are the books that they were reading. And this is the math lesson we were on, you know, and all of those sorts of things. So I think that, you know, they're going to be having a lot of feelings as they come back mm. into our um, our face-to-face classroom. And in addition to not having been here, coming back here is not going to be the same experience that they are accustomed to. You know, I'm putting tape on the floor to keep them six feet apart, Um we normally sit at tables and groups of four together with flexible, comfortable seating. I have to have everything spread a- apart with, you know, plastic chairs and everyone has to face the same direction. They won't even be able to necessarily look at each other besides peripheral vision. And, you know, everything is going to be very, very different for them. And so I think centering their social emotional well-being is going to be a top priority. And, you know, I I think sometimes as adults, we don't um, look at children and see who they really are and what they actually know and are processing and are dealing with. But the children are dealing with this pandemic and this social Um, realities of what's going on in the world. They're dealing with all of those things right now, just the same as adults are, you know, I've had some of my Asian American students asked to stay after school (laughs) and they want to talk to me. They said, you know, Ms. Day, I was just noticing that racism is not just for black people. They're hurting people like me too, you know? So like Centering the children and their well being, I think, is my top priority. And then my second priority, of course, and I don't think that actually these two things have to be mutually exclusive. I think that they can work in tandem, but of course, their academic needs, you know, assessing where they are in ways that I couldn't in the virtual environment and, you know, finding out their strengths. I don't like to have um, a mindset of, where, what they can't do and where they aren't. I want to think about where they are and what they can do. I don't want to, you know, lean into deficits. I want to lean into their strengths and also thinking about, you know, we, we have this mentality that school is the only place where children learn, and that's not true. Um, There are tremendous funds of knowledge in their homes and communities. And so taking um, stock of, of where, you know, what they've learned and where they've learned it and using that, um, as we return to, return to virtual school as well, I think is really important to me.
3: Yeah. That's such um, an interesting point. I, I've been wondering, I know there are concerns that kids will come back with this sense that they've got to make up for a deficit, um, or catch up. And what do you think is the mindset that you would like them to have? What would be, a healthy mindset for them to be able, to, that should be encouraged uh, in them?
1: You know what? I think that we have to have a mindset of abundance and we have to have a mindset of joy and we have to have a mindset of broadening Um, their educational experiences rather than narrowing them. I think sometimes when we look at kids with a deficit perspective, then we think, oh, we need to hone in on this. And we narrow our curriculum. We narrow our instructional practices. We narrow the experiences that children have rather than broadening them. So when we think about um, kids who are thriving, what do they have? They have Resources, right? They have um, both tangible resources and human resources. You know, I don't want to blame necessarily the perceived deficits on this pandemic. (laughs) I think sometimes we have been using the pandemic as a scapegoat. Um, because we don't want to talk about the fact that school was inequitable for lots and lots of children. And we owe a lot of children in the words of Gloria, Dr. Gloria, lots billings um, an education debt way before this pandemic ever started. And so I don't want to um, also perceive the pandemic as the, the, the fault or um, the onus for the, the, deficits, yes. perceived deficits that um that exist in children. So I think we have to be really careful about that. And I also just want to say that like this testing <laughs> is a poor substitute for racial, socioeconomic, and educational justice. So
3: what, yeah, what would be and we just have a minute left, but the, the kinds of assessments you were talking about the ones that you weren't able to do in a virtual environment, the academic ones that you think would make sure that we're getting at the right things and not creating this sense of deficit.
1: Right. Well, I think one of the major problems during this pandemic has been the tech issues, right? And so a lot of the assessments that we're doing are tech assessments. And so if kids are not connecting well, or they're having issues that we can't see because we're not with them, um, then that becomes problematic. And even just the difference between using an iPad versus using a Chromebook in our particular situation makes a huge difference in um, what happens. So, and also the, you know, I've had kids who were, who've said to me, oh, Ms. Jay, I'm going to go to my abuela's closet to take my assessment. So just having the the right conditions, first of all, at school for kids to take an assessment and get some valid and reliable results, but also those assessments that you do that are paper and pencil or the assessments that you do that require you that are interviews or running records that require you to um, you know, be next to a child and watch what they are saying and doing and the processes that are occurring in their their minds as they uh, as they work. So
3: Well, Ariel Johnson, it's been so great to hear your experience. Thank you so much for sharing it.
1: Thank you so much for having
3: me. Ariel Johnson, third grade teacher in San Jose will be talking more about how to address this past year of distance learning as students prepare to return to the classroom after the break. I'm Mina Kim, this is Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. President Biden's latest COVID relief bill set aside funds to address what's known as learning loss. And in March, Governor Newsom allocated $4.5 billion for things like summer school and more instruction time. But what's the best way to meet students' needs after a year of at least partial virtual learning for some total virtual learning and other pandemic disruptions? And one that exacerbated existing education inequities? That's what we're exploring this hour. And joining me now... Our Linda Jacobson, Senior Writer for the 74 Million, a nonpartisan education news site. Linda Jacobson, thanks so much for
2: joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, Linda Jacobson,
3: what studies have been done to gauge where kids are academically after this pandemic school year?
2: Our reporting on this really started with some of the predictions around how large the gap might be. And you know they were not pretty you know it looked like especially in math kids could be as much as a year behind um in reading a third of a year to maybe half a year behind it's interesting that when some of the early data actually started to come out the predictions or the reality didn't look as bad as some of those predictions but as the researchers have looked a little bit closer at the state and local level, they started to see some bigger gaps, particularly for students from low-income homes, English learners, uh, the ones that everybody thought would, you know, be most impacted, you know, by the school closures and, and like Ariel said, the lack of connectivity um, in their homes.
3: Can we take Los Angeles as a snapshot? Because I understand you covered the results of a survey of LAUSD from the advocacy group Great Public Schools Now. Could you tell us what the findings of that survey were?
2: Sure. They saw, looking at the high school level, that about 40,000 students were currently off track um, for graduation, including 6,000 just in this year's graduating class. They looked at, you know, it doesn't mean that you know, they won't catch up or that they won't be able to complete the credits that they need. But that was sort of the snapshot at this point. Um, at the middle school level, um, about a third of students were uh, on grade level, only a third, um in both reading and math. And there were, some signs of, you know, learning loss or whatever you want to call it. Some people don't like that term. Um, Off track (laughs) is another way to look at it um, in the early grades around reading as well. Um, One thing that we've seen that's been reported both nationally and in this LA study is that kids haven't made the normal progress that they're used, that they would normally make between fall and winter in their reading um, skills.
3: And again, as you were alluding to earlier in LAUSD, some of those affected most were in the early grades and also kids of color, particularly black and Hispanic students? Correct, correct. And you, yes, go ahead. You wanted to add to that.
2: I mean, I I think that the certainly English learners, you know, haven't had the support that they're used to having in the classroom. Um, I, I know that tutoring has been offered to to some extent, um, but I, you know, not to everybody who needs it. The technology issues are still there, like, uh, like Ariel said as well.
3: And in terms of that particular assessment, there was some pushback in terms of, the validity of the results or or what should be done with results like this when people are taking assessments in environments that can vary for the students depending on what their access has been to school. Can you talk about some of those concerns?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with any story that we've written about this topic, there's so many limitations to the data. You know, either the sample size of students that actually took the test is really small so the results are, you know, less meaningful. Um, you know, if they're taking the assessment at home, maybe they're looking up an answer or they're getting help from a brother or sister or a parent, um, or like like Ariel said, the connectivity issues are interrupting the test. Um, you know, we've talked to lots of students and families that they were getting in, you know getting to the point of submitting an assessment or submitting an assignment and they lost their connection. Um, you know, another issue is that a lot of the data that's come back has shown how many students were not taking the assessment. So, um, there's almost more not taking it than, than are. So the, you know, the results are, are, um, imperfect <laughs> in a lot of ways.
3: We're talking with Linda Jacobson, senior writer for the 74 million and non-partisan education news site about how to address the past year of distance learning as students prepare to return to the classroom's full-time What are your questions for what schools are doing? What are your hopes for when full in-person instruction resumes? If you're a parent or teacher, what challenges or benefits did your students experience over the past year? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'd like to bring Max Brooks into the conversation, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at CT3, an organization dedicated to cultural competence in education. Max Brooks, thanks so much for joining us.
6: I'm I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me on.
3: As we were just hearing from Linda Jacobson, these assessments, the results should be taken with what sounds like more than a healthy grain of salt. It sounds like you feel that way as well.
6: Um, I feel like most most educators, right? I haven't met a teacher yet who's like, oh, I cannot wait to get back and teach to the test." I've been chomping at the bit for this. Um, that's just not the world we live in, for from an education standpoint. That I think most folks really want to see authentic learning in action. Um, so I'd I would say, yeah, the testing, you know, there's a there's a place for it. Um, the previous guest mentioned uh, Dr. Gloria Latson billings who. I'm doing bow down movements. You can't see me because it's a college show, but she speaks a lot about it in terms of how the pandemic isn't uh, the first time we've had to deal with learning loss. For many of our communities, uh, traditionally disenfranchised communities, learning loss is not new. We've always had summer slide or, you know, breaks and and learning uh, times that lead to more disparity. And so what really we need to be thinking about is how we should transform the whole system. And here's a pivotal moment. If we don't have a moment like now with a global pandemic to to think about doing things differently, then I don't really know when is a better time.
3: And Linda Jacobson also said in passing, learning loss, some people don't like that term. How do you feel about the term learning loss, Max Brooks?
6: So a couple of things. One, I think there are well-intentioned, well-meaning folks, uh, you know, the upper levels of government who are trying to do the right thing, right? They want to get funding out to the schools. They know that there are serious needs whether it's around HVAC systems, whether it's about, you know, paying teachers, right? They can't recover quote unquote from learning loss if you don't have the educators there to support that. So there's a genuine need to put funding behind a lot of this. And the language that's in there right now is, you know, schools and systems have to tie use of the funds to learning loss. So that's just a reality. It, you know, it is what it is. However, there's definitely a deficit-based uh, connotation when you talk about learning loss. And at CD3, we think about starting with assets and building from assets, and it's just not an asset-based approach to looking at it. And I think there's a lot of pushback from educators when you know we talk about learning loss, learning loss, learning loss, learning loss. Like I was just talking to a colleague yesterday. I was like, if I hear learning loss one more time, <laughs> right? We're just it's it's come on, let's let's get past that. There's so many things that kids have learned. During this time, um, because in my opinion, learning never stops. And I hope, even in my 40s, that I'm going to continue to be a lifelong learner. So, what are we doing to address what kids have learned, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I have some superintendent friends from around the nation that I talk to on a regular basis, and we convene and we discuss these things, as well as other educators. But, you know, are we taking the time to think about, you know, do kids learn to, I don't know, like my nieces and nephews and other young children? They were learning how to design and, and sew masks and quilt things, PPE, making PPE. They were, you know, the older kids were, were creating blogs and social media to get engaged in community activism, um, you know, learning TikTok dances, right? Not for me, but like choreography, dancing, <laughs> kinesthetic brilliance, right? Those are all learnings that we can tap into um, on the technology front, right? Kids are, I know kids who are helping with the technology at their church, at their place of worship because the, the folks didn't know how to do Zooms remotely, right? So we need to be figuring out, what have kids been learning and been able to do despite the, the situation of not being physically in schools and then build from that in terms of how we structure our lessons and engage them in ways that are meaningful to them.
3: Well, Rebecca writes. An education advisor organization mentioned that it is not going to be the same learning loss for all in terms of amount and also specific skills. They suggested that we think of it as Swiss cheese, where each student will have different gaps. What do you think about what Rebecca's saying, Max Brooks?
6: Um, I mean, that's that's an approach. That I don't want to you know say anything about her specific uh, metaphor, but like when I think about uh, just the future of learning, what we want for our nation and for our society and for our world, um, I think about uh, everyone having a breadth of of, ex- of expertise. Um, there was a, a Harvard lecturer, i um, going to butcher the name, I think, but uh, I think the last name is M- Manshramani, Ramani, and they were speaking about how the future is going to belong to the generalists. I mean, historically, we've talked about people getting a deep, deep expertise in a certain field or certain arena, but the world is so interconnected now that having the ability to think broadly and to have broad experiences, it helps with problem solving. And we wanna have an interconnected world. We want citizens that can engage with each other across geographical lines. And and as we've seen, we've had to do a lot of things remotely. So everybody's gonna have gaps in what they know and what they can do. I think we fill those holes through interconnectedness, whether that's with students or with adults, because the pandemic has always also had an impact on us as adults. So teachers, leaders, school district administrators, We're not left out of this pandemic, right? We're also involved. Some of us have children and loved ones that we're taking care of. And so how do we work together collaboratively? How do we build communities where educators work together, where there's support? The shifts that we're talking about, the things we want to see, require the building of capacity for our leaders. They require the building capacity for our teachers. And so how are we leaning into that? How are we using this moment and these funds that are coming to support teacher's ability to shift and address the needs of the kids.
3: And let me go to caller Deborah in Oakland. Hi, Deborah, join us.
6: Hi,
7: thank you for taking my call. One of the things that I was saying is we're a parochial school in Oakland and we serve um, both, both students that have money and the students on deep, deep scholarships. And they've been back. Our youngest students have been back since October. And one of the things I teach sixth grade, um, sixth grade math, for example, I teach math and science, but sixth grade math, um, my students have to learn surface area. So basically you fold a net that's been flattened out. Imagine a Kleenex box flattened out, and they have to figure out surface area. Since they've been back, they're telling me that they're learning three times what they were learning online. Um, They can't imagine or picture what it's like to have a flat thing folded up and figure out the surface area. But once we were back together again and they could actually fold a piece of paper, tape it together and put it put it together, they could figure it all out. And I think the big thing is is that we looked at the schools that were in person and were doing it well and those that were not doing it well, and we just... They're so happy to be back. They're willing to do the masking and the distancing and late, late, late lunch so that we can accommodate lunches for all around. And I think it makes a huge difference.
3: Deborah, thanks for sharing that. So Linda Jacobson, I think this is a good time to start thinking about what do we do to get kids to a place where they need and want to be, especially as Deborah's describing, if teachers, when kids were not in person, weren't necessarily able to teach a school a skill at a a certain level because it was virtual or because teachers have reported that they did have to slow things down when they were teaching online. What are some of the things that are being proposed right now by schools?
2: I think the the topic of tutoring, um, what's being called high dosage tutoring, where it's one-to-one or one-to-two, is getting a lot of attention, you know, partially because... There's past research and current research showing that it's been effective, even with middle and high school students, which um, you know often don't make the gains uh, as younger students do. Um, and another topic that I think is getting a lot of attention um, conversation recently is the idea of acceleration, uh, not going back and focusing on those gaps or skills that might've been missed, but I'm hearing a lot of conversation around, let's make sure all students have a really strong, rich curriculum as they come back to school um, on grade level, grade level material, Um, like Max said, focusing on, you know, those skills and, and, and those new abilities that students have developed over this time. And, and, you know, with strong teachers who are going to draw out, you know, those, those lessons and, and connect to what, you know, students have learned. Um, Interesting. Maybe, maybe it was unexpected, (laughs) but still valuable. What do you
3: think of acceleration, Max Brooks?
6: So I, I am all for it and this is just my personal experience as a, an educator for 10 years here in DC um, in the classroom before I switched over to quote unquote, the industry side and trying to uh, spread the, the impact more globally but I've seen kids who essentially were given up one by their teachers right and and the school at large like they were suspended all the time or in trouble But in my my classroom, in my space, they were able to thrive and like to the point where people say, you got so-and-so to do what? And it's like, yeah, they built a pneumatic circuit and they created a video and a a demo on how to do it for the next school year's kids. Like, like, how did that happen? You give them a challenge, you set a high bar and you give nurturing and support and they'll live up to it, right? Our kids are not broken. There was a great article, uh, I think it was in the Atlantic, uh, about that. Like in a CT3, we have a youth first core value. And so we believe in putting youth first. And if you, if you, hold them to high standards, but you give high nurturing and support, you'll get the best out of them. And it'll be even surprise you. So I'm all for acceleration over remediation.
3: I see. So it is acceleration over remediation. It's really about not necessarily focusing your attention on, on basically trying to get kids to a certain level, but basically starting from a place where we're all uh, ready to learn and can pick up what we need to as we go.
6: So I want to just, just I want to be clear, there's a space for remediation, right? But I think when you have students who are working on deep, authentic problems that are a little more advanced, they will either seek out what the skills that they need that are, might be more remedial skills or seek out people or peers that can help them with those remedial skills. So we need that there, right? You need a space and a place, resources to go to support kids. But if you if you lead with that, and you're not thinking about the outcomes that's where you lose kids interest right ah. cuz nobody's like oh teach me to drill and kill fractions for me that sounds fun nope <laughs> not very enjoyable
3: if you lead with that, such an interesting point. Again, we're talking with Max Brooks, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at CT3, an organization dedicated to cultural competence and education. Linda Jacobson is also with us, senior writer for the 74 million. We're talking about kids returning fully to in-person instruction, or at least preparing to, and how to address this past year of distance learning, uh, what they've gained, and also the things they may that may have been exacerbated in terms of learning issues or inequities what are your thoughts give us a call 866-733-6786 get in touch on twitter or facebook at kqed forum email us forum at kqed.org what are you hoping schools will do to address changes that happened this past year uh, as full in-person instruction resumes or if you want to share experiences that you had with your kids your students those are welcome too. stay with us for more forum after the break i'm mina kim Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What should schools do to address learning differences when full in-person instruction resumes? The types of challenges that students experienced over the course of this past year or benefits, as some students did experience benefits and thrive over the past year as well. Tell us your thoughts, 866-733-6786. You can also email them to forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Joining us is Linda Jacobson, senior writer for the 74 million, and Max Brooks, vice president of strategic partnerships at CT3. And Tara writes, perhaps as a country, we can decide that next year is a do-over year. Each teacher keeps the class they had this year and students repeat the grade level that had been virtual. This will level all players. Linda Jacobson, what's your response to Tara? Because I do understand that that is something that something along those lines has been proposed in some
2: states. I think that. There are certainly parents who want to have that option. I think there would be a lot of pushback if that was a, um, you know, across the board (laughs) type of response. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a couple of States um, I think California is one, Florida is another where there was legislation introduced. I'm not sure the status of it right now, but just to make it clear that parents um, can make that request um, and there's been some polling of of parents who are interested in that but not ready to sort of make that call, you know, still hoping that kids would return to classrooms this year and they'd get a better sense of, you know, how on track or on par they are with their peers, um, you know, before they made such a request. But, uh, you know, Tennessee was one of the states that in their special session on uh, on education, they did pass a new retention bill that, um, you know, if students are not scoring at a certain level and, you know, if they don't participate in some of the opportunities given to them, like summer school and tutoring, et cetera, um, you know, that's one option that, that principals and, and educators would have would be recommending, you know, repeating the year.
3: Well, Anna tweets, I received my M.A. in teaching English as a second or foreign language last April, but I don't have a credential for teaching youth. Given the gaps with young English language learners, how can I use my skills to help bridge this gap? Linda Jacobson, you mentioned that tutoring is a big emphasis of a lot of schools. Who will be doing the tutoring and, and how would that happen?
2: i think they're going to be looking for a a broad range of of you know substitute type teachers um you know people who do have you know college degrees college students um <clears throat> you know even some of the even teachers will be you know adding tutoring you know to um you know to to their jobs <laughs> um you know over the summer of course <laughs> um you know, I, I think that uh, these programs are, are going to look far and wide for people who want to participate in this challenge.
3: And in terms of the resources right now that are starting to be allocated, both at the federal and state level, do you see that as enough for some of the things that they would like schools to do?
2: I know that the federal, the most recent federal relief package um Provides about twenty six hundred dollars per student um, for to address. Well, no, that's per student, and then uh, because of how states have to allocate some of that for summer school for after school programs. I think it came out to about five hundred dollars per student, specifically for learning loss related programs um i don't think that that you know is anywhere near some of the estimates of you know how much it could cost um to address some of the the deeper gaps hmm. but but there's wide flexibility in this money that's coming down from the federal government how states and districts want to want to use it so you know they're They're not limited by, you know, those amounts.
3: Well, let me go now to caller Lori in Oakland. Hi, Lori.
0: Good morning. I just wanted to address the issue of learning loss. Learning loss on my campus is referred to as unfinished learning. And it's just the idea that um, students haven't learned this topic yet. Hmm. And so kind of putting that in their minds, giving them some confidence, Also, we use the term just-in-time learning, so when I'm teaching on grade level standard and I notice that students are struggling, I can do a lesson or a mini lesson that will help review some old topics, but that keeps me on my standard and it keeps the students really engaged. Um, and keeps their questions coming. And I just wanted to comment that I'm really proud of my students this year for how much they've adapted and grown.
8: Mm.
0: So, thanks for Mike. Thanks for letting me talk. <laughs>
3: yeah, Laurie, I can hear the smile as you're saying that. Thanks for sharing. Um, well, Joyce wants to learn a little bit more about what accelerated learning is. Joyce writes, what exactly is it? How does it address specific students' deficits? We touched on it earlier, Max books, but can you answer Joyce's question? What is accelerated learning specifically? What are examples?
6: Yeah, so I think it will depend on the particular grade level or subject area, um, but some examples that I've seen is, um, just thinking about, I'll just look at, look at a middle school example where you might, or I'll use an example, I think somebody spoke earlier about the, the nets, right? And folding the, um, the structure to make a, a tissue box or whatever it was. Um, so it could be that that's the the skill you're teaching, or it could be, hey, let's design a house or let's design a community greenhouse. Um, and so you're you're going beyond maybe the, the basic skill of understanding the 3D structures, but like giving them a the higher goal and then putting into action uh, the framework for how those kids would accomplish that goal and then back mapping to like, to the caller's point, just-in-time skills that might help them with achieving that goal. So that's one way to look at it.
3: And the philosophy behind that is what exactly?
6: So the philosophy, so you can talk about constructivist mindsets or um, also with authentic problem-based or project-based learning, uh, where kids want to do things that are authentic and important to them around solving problems that are uh, in their community or in their local context. Uh, That would be one way to also consider
3: Hmm. Let me go to caller Phil next in Berkeley. Hi, Phil.
8: Hi, good morning. I wanted to share a hope. Um, I'm a veteran teacher at Berkeley High School, and I have been working along with many colleagues for uh, reform, school reform at Berkeley High for the duration of my career, and we've made incremental gains. Well, going into quarantine, we showed that we could make gains quickly, make changes quickly. And it's my hope that coming out of quarantine, We um, embrace the lessons learned and don't we, that we avoid trying to rebuild education the way it was pre-quarantine, that we use this as an opportunity to to innovate. Um, uh, One example is the uh, question of how many classes per day should kids at a high school take. It's pretty much unanimous among students that having them do fewer classes online has really helped them. And there's a widespread consensus among teachers that we uh, go from six or seven periods a day to about four periods a day for kids when we go back to in-person. So it's my hope that we, using that as an example, it's my hope that we do things differently. We've all known that there are real shortcomings, and this is a chance for us to make significant change.
3: Phil, thanks for saying that, because uh, Max Brooks, I do want to think and talk more about the opportunities that are there now to remake the system, as Phil is suggesting, um, now that we've seen so much of what has already been problematic that the pandemic really emphasized, but that also it may have exacerbated. What are you seeing as the real opportunities here?
6: So I love Phil's comment, right? And uh, going back to Dr. Gloria Latson Billings, right? She talks about being here for the hard reset and she even uses examples of other nations and countries that have had to take pivotal moments in their history to transform education. Um, So we know that in our nation, we're we're kind of polarized in different ways. Um, So some of the things I'm about to say might be, uh, I'll say might not be receptive, received positively by everyone, but I think we have to really examine our policies and our practices and terms of how we educate children in general in general. I think we also, there's an opportunity to really lean in on uh, culture responsive teaching and anti-racism. What does that look like? Um, how can we think about ways to address the needs of all of our kids um, by undoing some of the mistakes of, of the past? The system was not set up for all of our students to thrive equitably. Um, and if you look at the data, there's myriads of myriad amounts of data that support that. And so if we're going to make some changes, we should build coalitions, right? But take a student voice into account, right? As you mentioned, the high schoolers are saying, hey, you know, seven classes, eight classes a day is, is disastrous for me. But if we have more time and, and fewer classes, there's an ability to thrive. Um, so how do we engage community stakeholders, students, uh, parents, uh, educators, higher ed, and come together uh, to figure out what could be some ways to really educate our youth? Um, and there's examples that are already out there, right, but they're in pockets, they're not systemic, and systemic change takes policy change and policy change takes a coalition of the willing, so we as a nation uh, need to decide what do we really want to see for for our kids and if we can agree on what is important in terms of outcomes, then we can start to build true systems that get to those outcomes
3: and let me go to caller Jefferson in Berkeley next hi Jefferson
0: um yeah. Hi. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. So I thanks. can hear you. I'm yeah. a parent and and I think I'm the first parent that's actually called in. So I appreciate you having this conversation. It'd be really great to have parents included in it because I think we see directly the struggles that are going on and the wins. And so to your You know, like on on the struggle side, I can say that, you know, like I'm seeing it in my children and in their peers and in the Berkeley community. There's been a significant rise in mental health crises. Oakland ER, for instance, is seeing a three times rise in children admitted to the emergency room for um, mental health measures. Um, uh, And much of this coming from the, the massive gap in what I actually want to call learning loss, not some PR spin, that it's anything else, but the actual gap that's occurring disproportionately felt by our minority communities um, due to distance learning. And so it's a real kind of challenging problem because the, the the Berkeley USD system has been so focused on equitable education. And when the chips were really down to ensure that all kids were getting an equal education, we the, the BUSD education system effectively jettisoned the minority communities and let those communities struggle even more rather than actually returning to school and following public health measures that allowed it. And so to the guests that said that um, we do need to we uh, kind of uh, we do need to rethink our education and 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 move forward from here. I completely agree, but I think the question is really how we do that with a diminished role for teachers' unions in the education of our children. In this case, for example, the teachers' unions have been effective in vetoing public health measures, in vetoing the science, even science teachers, and the CDC, and ensuring that Berkeley. Uh, and California leads the nation in the most closed schools, whereas if you go back thirty years, we' were a model for public education.
3: Well Jefferson so I would I'm... love
0: to hear the guests talk about yeah. like how the the actual e- equity of education was jettisoned in this regard and what they intend to do to make up the learning loss that they drove by keeping the schools closed.
3: Well, thanks for raising the things you raised. Max Brooks, if you want to respond to that initial point, but I also appreciate that Jefferson is bringing in the mental health supports aspect of this, because I know that that is something that we've definitely covered on this program, and I'm wondering how the schools will address.
6: Yeah, so it's a, it's a great point. And I remember when, almost a year ago, um, some of the scientists and the experts were saying that, yes, the, a pandemic is is headed, it's here, and it's going to get worse but they also talked about the second wave which was there's going to be significant mental health crises and and issues happening the need for more counselors and support as part of this and we're seeing it playing out you know um we've i've dealt with loss i think there's probably not a single person on this call or this uh, listening to the show that hasn't in some way dealt with loss whether it's direct loss of someone who you know succumbed to covid or whether it's, you know, a loved one that you weren't able to go see, or um, even say goodbye to because of COVID. Um, so those things are real. Uh, the struggles, the emotional toll, the financial toll, the anxiety, all of those things are very, very real. And that's why it's so important as we, you know, head towards full reentry that we, we lead with that and focusing on how we're addressing those, those physical, emotional, and mental needs of our kids. That said, uh, I hear on on the other piece of that with you know, engaging the community, engaging teachers and teachers unions. Um, Our organization works at a national level. So, you know, all unions are not created equally. So I don't want to necessarily uh, touch on a specific union or a specific geography. Um, But what I can say is that when you engage educators, engage unions and what it is we want for kids, you can usually find some common ground and then work from there in terms of what we need to do to get to those outcomes. I'll just leave it
3: there. Again, Max Brooks is vice president of the Strategic Partnerships with CT3. Linda Jacobson, senior writer for the 74 million. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Alex in Sacramento. Hi, Alex.
4: Hi. I'm, it's great to be on the call. I, I'm actually in education. I teach at a community college in the area. Um, and my kids are four and eight. And we decided to just opt out of the Zoom whole shenanigans i wasn't really feeling it for my um uh, my son was going into second grade i, I knew that he wasn't going to be successful with that model so we hired a private teacher we are a black family and we hired a black a, a black woman to teach our children we went in with another another family we have a learning pod and it's just been incredible um it's just been an incredible experience and i don't think we would have done this if we hadn't um, been forced to uh, huh. because of the pandemic. And I just think, I just wish that more families had the opportunity that we had to, to do this um, because, like your previous calls were saying, it's really time to, to innovate with education and give families more options and get more money out of um, how much we're paying for students to, to be in in the public school system. Like, we need to really uh, innovate our, our, our uh, education system and allow for more options for families. And I, I really think it's time to make classrooms smaller. I think it's time to... Um, be more creative with how we're uh, educating our young people. And yeah, so I, I really feel like it's been beneficial for our family.
3: Um, oh. I'm so glad to hear that, Alex. Thank you for sharing. Linnea writes, I see in my daughter a year of great growth. The study skills she's acquired would never have happened under typical circumstances. My sixth grader used apps like iMovie to create small films for her speech assignments and her teacher absolutely loved it. Kathleen writes, perhaps the pandemic has provided the opportunity to rethink grade levels or classes. As a 25-year now retired teacher, I came to believe that mastery of grade level curriculum was more informative of a student's growth than age. So Linda Jacobson, talk about what's happening now. Uh, If you could just give us a sense, we're talking about what schools and districts are doing. Where is the energy? Where is the momentum and attention at the moment?
2: We have seen a lot of districts sort of repurpose some of their staff um, to stay in touch with students in in sort of new ways. Um, And I think that's one of the models that is likely to continue, um, like <clears throat> like Max was saying about the social-emotional needs of students. Um, you know, these are, a, for example, you would have a teacher who has a group of students, like a cohort, that they would check in on a weekly basis and, you know, they might find, you know, little needs that a student had for supplies at home or something like that. Or they might Uncover, you know, some far more serious issues. You know, hunger, homelessness issues hmm. um, that, without that sort of weekly connection, you know, would have gone unnoticed.
3: Well, Linda Jagesson, thanks so much for joining us today. Linda Jaguson, senior writer for the seventy-four million and nonpartisan education news site, and Max Brooks, vice president of strategic partnerships at CT three. Caroline Smith produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks to our listeners for their comments and questions. This is Forum.
4: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
5: This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission.